created live on Fireside. Hey, everyone. Welcome to YNS Live. I am so excited to introduce you. Uh, can't even speak today. Introduce you guys to Stephanie Arnold, who is a international bestselling author, writer, speaker, and thought leader. Stephanie is the author of 37 Seconds. So I'm going to give you guys a little background on how we met, but I also want everyone in the audience, welcome Gina, Patrick, Greg, Nev, I want you guys to broadcast this live because this story is incredible. When I tell you I met Stephanie in a different platform and she started talking and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to know this woman more. I have to find out. Uh, I need I need the story. I need to talk to her about the story because I have so many questions. And then the, literally this last week, we have been um, in each other's inboxes just talking to each other about everything from parenthood, motherhood, menopause, sex. I mean, literally everything. We became fast, fast friends. So Stephanie, I want to introduce you uh, to Fireside, which is a live show. Again, if you guys can tap on the two little dots below you or the two little lines, and you'll see something that says broadcast live. This just gets this message out to more people so they can hear it. So welcome, Stephanie. How are you? I am. Yeah, good. I no, I am so good. I'm just like trying to. Okay, let me broadcast live. Let me post this on Instagram. Let me get this. And I'm like, I can't multitask right now. My ADD is out of control. (laughs) It's great though. No, you know what? I this is. I I can't even think about how many shows I've done. And it's true. The first time I think I literally opened the room at the time, and it took me like eight minutes. So there was like eight minutes of music of me trying to type everything and make sure everything was spelled right. And, and everything. So, um, I am so excited to have you here. I'm so excited, first of all, for you to get a little touch of this fireside because I think this is something that you're going to love and, um, be able to utilize in all of the things that you're going to be doing. So can you give us a little background on what 37 seconds is about, please? Sure. Thank you so much for having me here. It was so great meeting you and, um, I'm really excited to be here. So thank you everybody for, for being on this platform and for, for being here to listen. This is, this is so cool. And I like the reactions and the laughter and the the clapping. So please do it. If there's any booze and anything else, let me know. Um, so 37 seconds, I, uh, I was pregnant with our second child and I started to have very detailed premonitions that I was going to die giving birth. Um, so much so that I sought out specialists. I told all my doctors were in Chicago. So I was delivering at Northwestern Memorial Hospital, which is a very big teaching hospital. They deliver 12,000 babies a year. And you figure, you know, if a mother comes in and starts complaining about um, foreboding or this impending doom, you figure they've heard it before, but they hadn't. And um, just for way of background, my former life was a TV producer. I produced a lot of reality shows, um, worked on shows like Surreal Life and Flavor of Love. I like to joke that I used to do these shows and I was going to hell and then I died and came back. So it was a rebirth of sorts. So I've paid my dues and now I'm coming out doing more more spiritually enlightened kind of programming to give back to the world <laughs> rather <hard>. than <laughs> ra- rather than have Vern Troyer peeing in a corner. Cause that was just like, you know, although entertaining, um, not really uh, substantive as far as uh, enlightening people. Uh, so I ended up having um, these very detailed visions and, um, and they were so much like I had, 
I, visions that I was going to hemorrhage, visions that I was going to be cut from sternum to pelvis, that the baby was going to be fine, that I'd need a hysterectomy, that I'd be put under general anesthesia and I'd be dead on the operating table. And, um, and, you know, in the doctor's defenses and my husband, who's a PhD economist from University of Chicago and every, every scientist out there and left-brained, um, person is probably listening to me thinking I'm batshit crazy. And, you know, we go through all the tests and again, everything is negative. So they're telling me I'm stressed, I'm hormonal and I need to calm down, um, I post on Facebook if every if anybody has my blood type, I'm going to need it. If um, you know, I wrote goodbye letters, I sent out goodbye letters, and then ultimately, um, I went in to deliver a healthy, happy baby boy. And seconds later, I was dead. And everything happened exactly the way I said it was going to happen. Um, I ended up having a very rare pregnancy complication as an amniotic fluid embolism. It's a where amniotic cells get into the mother's bloodstream. And if you happen to be allergic to it, your body goes into anaphylactic shock. And in most cases, you don't make it. The, um, the only reason, and I flatline for 37 seconds, and that's where the 37 seconds comes because I look at it as the culmination of my visions actually coming true and also the catalyst for what was to come. So the one thing I didn't predict is that in one of my last consultations with anesthesia, um, she said she didn't feel comfortable that she had a patient speaking so clearly about what was going to happen. She had had a baby before, had had a C-section before, and had sought out specialists to save her life. And with that one phone call, she flagged my file and incorporated extra blood in a crash cart in the operating room. And that is 100% why I'm alive. Okay, I have to pause you. I'm like, the chills. I mean, guys, in the audience, can you believe the story? It is so insane. So I have so many questions. Um, first, thank you for coming on and sharing this, this story. And when, how long, far along were you uh, pregnant when you started having these premonitions? Um, I was five months, but the 20 week ultrasound, I was diagnosed with something called a placenta previa, which is basically where the placenta is growing on top of the cervix. And it's a one in 200 risk. You know, they just tell you to not do some heavy lifting. And usually as the belly and the uterus grows, the, the uterus or the placenta will move out of the way. Worst case scenario, they say, you know, you'll have a C-section. I wasn't afraid of the C-section. Like I said, I had had one before. Um, but you know, my first child, I gave birth at 41 weeks. The only complication was that she was too big. So that's why I had the C-section, but it wasn't, there wasn't an issue. Um, but there was something that sat inside of me that was like, there's something that's going to be really wrong with this. It, it was just a knowing, you know, you don't know how, you know, you just do. And I tell people, I'm like, I don't care if you believe it comes from a spiritual place or a scientific place or something that we're hardwired for. When you feel it, you need to listen to it um, because it ultimately can save your life. Right. I mean, so you're, I mean, that had to have been really so, so you were having dreams about this. I mean, that had to have been so scary and then no one listening to you it's like okay am i going crazy or like um i mean did you feel at, at all at times were like okay i'm going crazy or were you, were you like okay. no i know yeah um you know so so it was happening all day long it wasn't even that it was dreams i couldn't sleep i mean anybody who's been pregnant before sleeping is really difficult but you know no they were during the day they were at night they were um, it was it was really difficult, and so I didn't um, I 
for whatever reason, I didn't think I was crazy. I just knew I had to speak up. And maybe that's from my TV background. I was like, you know, I'm research oriented. I was like, this is going to happen. And I just, I I don't know. I didn't, you know, I didn't hesitate. You know, one woman said to me at a book event, she's like, you know, after the 10th doctor told you you were crazy and needed to quiet down, um, I would have stayed quiet. And I was like, then you would have stayed dead. Right. And that's the thing. I love that you said that. I mean, obviously it's, you know, innate in who you are as well, but that it was so real to you and that, that you just kept, you know, following your gut. And I think that's, I talk about that all the time. I talk about that to clients. I talk about that on my podcast. I talk that to my kids and people. When you have a gut feeling, you really don't like, you really need to listen to it. You need to pause your body and listen to it instead of trying to stuff it because people stuff it, right? Someone might've had that premonition and and like a doctor told them they were crazy and they've been like, okay, I'm crazy. Right. And they would never have talked about it. I mean, how many times probably has this happened, but the fact that you were strong and who you were, right. Also like, you're like, no, I know this is going to happen. And then that anesthesiologist, I'm correct in saying that, right. That's who the person that listened finally. That's correct. That they did. I mean, what an amazing person to be like, you know what? No, I, I, I need to, I need to listen to this woman because whether it happens or not, I, let's not be the ones that are like, she's been talking about this for five, six months and you guys, we did nothing. You know, did you get a chance to talk to your doctors afterwards? Did they apologize to you? Like, I'm so <laughs> sorry. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. No, I have to say they've been huge proponents um, and validators of the story. And that, and that I think is what separates a lot of people that have had um, certain near-death experiences because the doctors were in it since day one. And, you know, I'm not saying they were so blatantly um, ignorant to my to my plight in the sense of they were not compassionate, but, you know, they were going off of the data that they had, just like my husband. It wasn't that they didn't care. There's the fact that the data is not saying this, you're stressed out for nothing. You know, you're going to be fine. You're in a teaching hospital. We're prepared for all sorts of emergencies. But when the doctors were on a talk show with me, you know, one of the the, the host was on the doctors. Um, she said, she said, had Stephanie not kept speaking up, would she still be here? And the doctors are very open about it. Like, I don't think so. Right. You know, we were prepared, but she prepared us. And so that's, you know, it's a lesson for everybody, but also to have the, the clinicians say that and validate it, it, it helps patients speak up and be stronger about their voice. Right. Um, and ask yeah. questions. And so that's what I love. So obviously, yeah. you know, the doctors that you had, because you could have had a doctor that was insecure, right? And that was like, no, you know, this was just a fluke or whatever. But your the doctors obviously were confident in who they were as well. So they were like, you know what? Yes, like this, this was something that we missed. And it is something that we're going to listen a little bit more. So obviously, you changed them as well. So it wasn't just... They have. Right. I mean, that's they have, they're, they're definitely, you know, and yeah, I mean, anesthesiologists and I did not know this. And for anybody in the audience, you know, anesthesiologists are in charge of keeping you alive. And so you always think that your doctor is the quarterback and that's the person that's going to be there. But at the end of the day, the anesthesiologist is the one that is in charge of keeping you alive. So when that happens, you, you know, when you have any fears and you're nervous about anything and it's constant and you're just stressed out about it, speak to the anesthesiologist because they are the one that if you say, I feel like I'm going to die, everything stops. 
they 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 know that foreboding exists prior to an embolus or prior to a heart attack. I mean, the the interesting thing about our story is they've never had a patient speak for three months straight that this was going to happen in the detail that I had had it. Um, but nevertheless, it was the anesthesiologist that that was uncomfortable, and the second anesthesiologist who physically and literally saved my life with with all the the. Um, methods that were in the operating room at the time. Right. Which is amazing. And I didn't actually know that. So that's something that you just taught me, which is great. I mean, hopefully I don't have to have any life-saving surgeries, but now, you know, um, I appreciate that. So that's something that, again, I don't know how many people in the audience knew that. Um, again, with your story, you're helping change how people talk to their doctors and how people, so can you give us a little insight of like what you've done from that? So that was that moment. Um, and you had surgeries after, do you want to follow up? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So I left you with a cliffhanger. Yeah, I died. So, um, so then (laughs) they, they resuscitate me. Right. So by the way, my husband was not there during the time of delivery and, you know, God works in mysterious ways, whatever you believe, but, um, you know, he still feels guilty to this day. And I said, it's one thing for you to be told your wife flatlined. It's another thing to see it. Um, they would have taken him out. And so that must've been crazy. Yeah. Well, well also two months before, just, you know, two months before I met with the head of gynecological oncology at Northwestern. Now, mind you, you go to see a gynoc when you have reproductive organ cancer. And I was told that if I needed a hysterectomy during childbirth, that um, that my OB couldn't do it and they'd transfer me to maternal fetal medicine. But maternal fetal medicine doesn't have as much experience with high-risk reproductive organ surgeries as a gynecological oncologist. So I made an appointment with the head of gynoc at Northwestern and talking to the doctor, and my husband is looking at women suffering from cancer with no hair and IVs in their arms. And he's like, we are wasting this man's time when he's trying to save lives. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you, but you know, maybe he's heard of something like this. Maybe this foreboding exists in patients of his. So, you know, he went in and, in the consultation and he was just like, you know, how can we help you? And I gave him all of my foreboding you know, feelings and that he was going to be the doctor who was going to perform the hysterectomy when I needed it during delivery. And he's like, have you been on the internet, Mrs. Arnold? And I'm like, why, yes, I have, but this is going to happen. So ultimately I go through this whole thing. The, um, I flatline, I have a heart attack, my lungs collapse, they resuscitate me and they tape my eyes shut. And then the second phase of an AFE and amniotic fluid embolism starts, which is DIC, which is your body's inability to clot blood. And it is an anesthesiologist. It's the worst case scenario for a pregnant woman, um, for anybody, but you know, you're, so you start to hemorrhage and bleed out and I'm O negative, which is a very rare blood type. Um, so they get me stabilized and they put my uterus back in my body and then they put me into the surgical ICU on life support. And that's when my husband arrives. And so my, yeah. Oh my gosh. So you, oh my gosh. So that's when he arrives. That's when he arrives. So he's, he's visiting this new life of his son, who is this miracle child. And then he is like, shit, you know, everything she said would come true. So he, you know, he says, he says he wasn't conscious of it, but what he did say to the anesthesiologist, when she said I had had an amniotic fluid embolism, he said, if she needs a hysterectomy, this is the doctor we met with two months before. And she looked at 
him strange. And she said, okay, I don't know why you did that, but we've stabilized her. I think we have the bleed under control. Um, and about seven hours later, they realized they didn't. And they called in the gynoc to perform the hysterectomy. Um, when they did the pathology on the uterus, the one thing I had thought I was going to have, which is what Kim Kardashian had, which was an accreta, which is the placenta marries itself to the uterus. And if that happens, you might need a hysterectomy. And um, when they did the pathology on the uterus, an accreta had started to form. But the MRI that I was given at 32 weeks in preparation for this showed it negative. So the test was wrong or didn't pick it up at that point. Um, but I was right in everything that I thought it was going to happen. So I, I'm in a medically induced coma for six days. We're Jewish. And I had, um, you know, we have a bris, a circumcision for the baby at day eight. And so then I have everybody who has been around me, on me, in me, um, praying all different denominations. And on the seventh day, um, they bring me down off of the meds and I'm, my kidneys had failed. So I was five times my size. Um, and the edema was really bad. So I look down at my swollen belly and I say, am I still fucking pregnant? <laughs> you know, coming off of it. And my husband of course said that. Of yeah. course she said that. <laughs> and so my husband says, I think she's going to be okay. Right. So, so, you know, the recovery was tough, but yes, to, to go back to your original question, I mean, the doctors were dumbfounded and they were like, you know, how did you know? And because you're in a teaching hospital, I had so many different departments from nephrology, hematology, cardiology, like everybody and their residents coming to me and saying, how did you know? And, and I say, you know, I've learned subsequently that, you know, the first year of medical school, doctors learn that listen to the patient because they are already giving you the diagnosis. And sometimes they are not giving enough time for, you know, some history and some backstory to let the patient speak a little differently or to, um, without fear of judgment, to let them speak in an open, inviting, empathetic way. Um, but since then, um, I've been very involved with the different medical institutions. I speak at a lot of hospitals and universities, and they're using our book as a teaching tool, as you know, as one story where they can listen to the patients differently. So, what happened after you died? You like what was the experience? Like, yeah. where did what did you like? Like, do you just were you seeing light? Like, you know, you hear people saying, "I have to, I have to ask that." I yeah, no, out. of course, I, you know, everybody asks that question. It's so, so you know, I went immediately back in a TV mode because I didn't remember anything. So I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to create a reality show about near death experiences. You know, people that have flatlined, come back, what they've learned, what their experiences were, um, and. Um, and then I was on the Steve Harvey show and Steve said, did you see the light? And I said, I don't know, man, they gave me a lot of drugs. I, you know, have no idea. And, um, and I wasn't afraid to say that I, there was something or there wasn't something. I just didn't know if there was a way to find out. And the traditional therapy that I was going to, every time I go to a new therapist, they, I would ask, how is it I saw everything months before it happened? Um, and they were like, let's not worry about that right now because they didn't have the answer. Let's just worry about getting you out of the trauma. And I said, well, that's not good enough for me. I'm like, I, I'm living in this body and I need to be a parent again. I need to be a mom of this newborn. I need to be a wife again. So 
I sought out a regression therapist, and many of you might have heard about past life regressions and Dr. Brian Weiss, who wrote the book, Many Lives, Many Masters. And so there was a woman in Miami who, um, who does past life regression. I was not interested in learning about past lives. And one of the things was, you know, okay, so if they could tell me I'm in a past life, I was a Viking princess or what have you. And by the way, why, why is no one in a past life like a prostitute or a housekeeper? I'm like, why are they all kings and queens? <laughs> they are, you're right. <laughs> right, right. So I'm like, okay, fine. So, so, And there's no way to prove it unless I speak a completely different language. And then you're like, okay, how would you know that, right? So I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in going back to the 37 seconds, maybe the months before to see if there was something I was missing and then the subsequent coma. And, um, and so regression therapy, for those of you don't, who don't know, they use hypnotherapy to take you back to the moments of trauma. And so they take you back as an observer. And what they talk about is that all of these moments are like film strips in your brain. And you can access them when things are quiet, less fight or flight, um, less stressful. So she finally got me back to the OR. It was like hours and hours. And I videotaped my therapy probably. Well, if you couldn't tell by now, I'm a little type A and I didn't want anyone tampering with my brain, um, you know, making me cluck like a chicken when I said hello. So I had never, <laughs> yeah, thing. Right, right. you know, and I have never, I had never been hypnotized before. I wasn't so um, confident that I could be, but but so I, I do this, I'm relaxed, it's a meditative state. And I also wanted to record just for, just in case I didn't remember anything. Um, so she finally takes me back to that moment and you see my body convulse and seize. And then you actually hear me say, you know, I see who hit the button for the code, who, which nurse jumped on my chest to give me CPR, you know, what my doctors were doing by my feet. And I was having a C-section. So there was a curtain in front of my face. Um, there were what my doctor was saying, what that, you know, there were just lots of things. And then I saw what my daughter was doing down the hall in the labor and delivery room with the nanny. And then I saw what my husband was wearing off the plane. Um, when I was in the coma, I saw my mother arrive and what she was wearing and what happened when she walked into my room. Um, it just, just all these little things, but they were just a bunch of download. And then I saw spirits. I saw hundreds and hundreds of spirits and, I have heard from psychologists that say, you know, of course, when you're traumatized, you want your loved ones there. And I did see my loved ones. And I saw my uncle who had passed many years ago, who I was very close to. And one of the things that I was craving during my pregnancy were cigarettes. And I'd never smoked in my life. I have asthma and I would, you know, I'd never, ever smoke a cigarette. So, um, so that was an odd thing. And so maybe by some strange coincidence, you know, he's there and he's helping me through this process. And so I'm like, okay, let's, let's put a pin in. I was doing the Megan Kelly today show and I talked more in depth about this. And so I was like, okay, let's, let's, um, let's talk about not, let's not talk about the family members that I saw that had passed. Let's talk about the ones I didn't know that had messages for the people I do know back on earth. And I had seen my husband's father who had passed in 1998. And I write about this story in the book because there's no way I would have known the things that I knew to give the messages that I gave. Um, and it's just, it was one thing after another, after another. And then, um, and then I, I talk about how when one goes asystolic, which is no electricity in, in the body, you're, no heartbeat, no blood pressure, even how short a time it is, 
um, and you get plugged back in, you're on high voltage. So you're picking up all this energy and you're very conscious and aware of your surroundings that you cannot see, but you can feel. And so, yeah, there's, there's this other side. Did I see a light? Um, was it the tunnel vision? Was it anything? No, but I came into it as an observer coming through my regression. Um, had I been, I did see my body, uh, my spirit perpendicular to my body. And I did feel this tethering, like an umbilical cord to my spirit. And when I flatlined that, that tether was gone. And then when I went back in through the regression, um, you could see my body in a lot of pain going back in, in almost this hard landing. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That is amazing. I mean, I, I literally am, again, I remembered to re uh, unmute myself and I'm like staring at the window with my, if someone was like watching me, they'd be like, what is going on? That is so incredible. And I love the description. I mean, you can totally tell you're a writer um, and just the description that you said. And I love that your husband's um, father, you saw him like that makes me just like that. All of that makes me so happy because that's all the stuff that I always, always envisioned. Um, and that, that it all kind of happens like that is, is, is incredible. Um, incredible. I mean, when you, when you came to, after they put you in the, you know, the coma and you saw your husband and you said, you know, I want to see my fucking baby. Like what, what was the, like after you held your, your son, like, can you tell us like what your emotions were there? You know, it, it's really difficult because the hardest part that I wrote in my book was that, I mean, I cry every time and he's eight and he obviously reads, but he hasn't read it yet. And I just, um, that was the hardest part because there was a disconnect for a few weeks. Um, wrongfully. So I was scared of him, not the, um, not the pregnancy. And I didn't bond with him the first few weeks. And I know that that part has been very helpful for other moms that have gone through it. It, it saddens me that I even experienced it briefly. Um, and I never want him to misinterpret that that is because I didn't love him, but it was, um, it was hard. It, it was, uh, you know, Jonathan, I was in the hospital for a month. So when you're, you know, kidney failure, dialysis, inpatient dialysis. I had open wounds that they left um, that could get infected. I was in a wheelchair that was being, you know, gurney to and from appointments. They had um, ports in my chest and everything. And so, you know, the doctors and the nurses were like, well, you could breastfeed. And I'm like, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want a baby to pull at these, um, these lines that are linked to my heart and can kill me. Um, and I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to damage this child by having this negative energy that I had in the sadness, this overwhelming fear and of even living not from a depressive state, but because I, it, I was so acutely aware of how close a call it was. And I had predicted it that when anyone and any nurses or doctors came in and said, you gave us a great scare and God has a plan for you and it's a miracle you survived, it made me feel the weight of the world on my shoulders. And so by touching this child, I didn't want him to feel that fear or that anger or that sadness. 
Um, so it took me a few weeks and then finally, um, and Jonathan had kept the baby in the hospital the entire time thinking that I would change my mind or that I would bond. Um, and finally, I think the last week I was there when I was getting a little stronger and they were getting ready to discharge me, you know, I decided, okay, I've got to change his diaper. And the very first diaper change he shit all over me like and i and i'm in the bed i'm like yeah. and then i'm like you know what Touché, I little fellow. exactly i deserved it and i i laughed i was in a lot of pain but i laughed and i was like okay that was the moment where we started to bond oh my god i love that i like i love that more than anything he totally shit on you and that's when it was like but so i have to say i mean i had uh, an emergency cesarean with my oldest montgomery and the re- I had a terrible recovery. Um, and I was like in great shape. And I, it was really odd for me. And we, we came out to our beach house and my mom came with us and she like did everything. And it was, I had that same, I didn't bond with him the way I expected to. Like I could not wait to be a mom. That was like what I always wanted to do. I babysat. I was good with kids. And um, he was he was not difficult, but he was, he had his nights and days and I was so much in pain and I like swelled beyond belief that I couldn't really walk and do anything. And then my incision opened up. And so I think that, and I, I'll tell people that as well. Like we didn't, it wasn't like, Oh, I love it first sight. Like I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe this, you know, just happened. And I obviously did not go through, my body didn't go through what your body did. So that it makes sense. And I think people that have gone through even a little bit of trauma in childbirth can, you know, can, it can relate. But again, it is not something that's talked about. It's always like, oh, you see your baby and you're like, love at first sight. And they're the most beautiful thing. Like it doesn't always happen that way. And it's important to talk about because especially for m- new moms and you don't have that feeling, you get that guilt. I mean, I knew that it was, I was like, this is okay. I'm going to work past this. Um, but it was also having my mom here doing everything. I remember there was one point that I got a little resentful. I was like, mom, let me just do it. But I couldn't, like, I really c- actually couldn't. I did nurse him, but my, you know, my dog would be like laying on top of my stomach with, with the baby on top of him. And it was, everything was just so painful. So I appreciate you sharing that. And I think when your son gets older, um, I mean, the way you just explained it, you're going to explain it exactly that way. And you guys have a bond, you know, that he's going to get it right. He's going to feel, feel it. So. Yeah. I thank you for sharing that as well, because it always feels like you're, you're out in solitary confinement when you feel that way. And you're just like, why am I so, you know, I should be grateful. I'm alive. I'm grateful that he's, he's healthy. I'm grateful the family's still together. And yet you're just like, what, you know, like you're, you're psychologically so messed up and physically so messed up that you just can't even get past the minute by minute, um, without feeling this, um, overwhelming sense of guilt of just like, just like, why can't you just step out of it and just be the mom you were always meant to be Yeah, for that? Totally. No, I totally hear you. Um, so, and I love though, that, that he, he shit on you and that's when you, cause that's yeah, just, that great. says like, but it also says like, you're just, you're just a real person, right? <laughs> you're like, yes. Touche little fellow. Okay. Yep. I'm here now. Right. <laughs> and he knew what you needed. So 100%. I love that. Um, okay. So tell us now after this all happened, like when did you decide to, that you needed to share this story? Like what was the pivotal moment there that it was like, I got to get on my, yeah. you know, on stages. Yes. Yeah. So, so it wasn't, um, so I'd say my cousin, who's a journalist, um, who was my editor on my book, she, 
you know, she worked in news and she said, when you're ready, I think your story to other women of listening to their intuition will be very valuable. And so about six months postpartum, I, you know, I wasn't fully there, obviously. I hadn't started my regression therapy, but I needed a mission to get me out of the funk. And I, you know, as somebody who's been working since she's 14 years old, I was like, I was like, I need something to do. So I, I need to get out of this kind of this, this just blob. So I told the story to a local CBS affiliate in Chicago and I didn't expect what would happen next. It kind of went into a runaway train that I was like, it's out there. So it went up on the bird, which means it goes up on a satellite. So a CBS owned and operated station um, in Chicago puts it up on a satellite and then anybody can take it from there. So um, once it went up the very next day, it was the cover story, Yahoo worldwide, like global, it was everywhere. And then good morning. Yeah. It was like, I was not prepared for this. Then Good Morning America called. It was right before Christmas. And they were like, we'll put you on our Christmas show. And uh, as long as you don't do the Today Show. And, you know, it was just like, it was it was like, okay, this is the TV world. And what was great about it was I had a mission. Like I found meaning in these, in instantly in the survival. Um, and it put a distance between me and the story. But what became perfectly clear eventually was that I was the story. I was very good before producing other people's stories, creating other stories. Um, But my friends growing up in the business were now EPs of all these talk shows and news shows and everything. So they were like, I want you on my show. I want you on my So I just kept going, hey, friends, good to see you. Um, And then my whole life became like just completely surreal. And, um, And then when I went to to pitch the idea of doing a reality show. Cause I was like, Oh, let me, you know, from, from this mindset, I was like, all right, let me create something, you know, let me create a show. And I went into the networks to pitch the show with my agents and everything. And they were like, we're not going to buy your show, but you should write a book. And I'm like, I don't want to write a book. It's hard to write a book. I write for TV and let's do TV, you know, 22 minutes at a time. Right. So, um, and a really close friend of mine said, you know, if you write the book, the rest will come. And so my agent at WME was like, you know, I think you should talk to literary agent at WME, spoke to them. And I knew that if I produce, I mean, I don't consider myself the prolific writer. What I consider myself is, is a producer. And when you have a bird in the hand, which was this agent saying, if you write it, I will take it out to market. And I knew that that was the way that it was going to happen. Um, So I had done so much research on the fact that, and who knows if you want to write a book, right? It's like, I don't, I don't need to be stroked on this story, but if there is a way to help people, then this is what I'm going to do. I sat on the board of the AFE foundation. You know, it's the, the only foundation that's, that's focusing on finding a cure or at least protocols in place to help other moms, unexpected moms, because it's unpredictable, it's unpreventable, and it's usually fatal. And two unsuspecting moms-to-be will have it this week. Um, Each week, one will not make it. And so we're on this race. And so I'm like, okay, well, if I can do something and then fund whatever I can with the sale of the books, then that's what I will do. So, um, So when I was looking up stories like mine, um, they didn't exist. And the more I talked about the story in the media, more people were reaching out to me through the website, through emails, through Instagram, 
through Facebook and they were like, you know, I've had feelings of this too. And what would you say to this and how would you handle it? And so I became more of this patient advocate. And then also things that became very logical to me through this experience is I needed to impart because maybe they will help save lives. Um, and so HarperCollins bought the rights to the book. They thought it was going to compete with Heaven is for Real based on all these experiences, but I'm happy to say it didn't. Um, it's actually be being used as a teaching tool in hospitals um, with patients, clinicians, and now people can point to a crazy story of foreboding that didn't exist before, because when I was searching for one, it didn't exist. So now they can use this um, to help them to speak up differently. Amazing. Amazing. And that's what I think is so, um, just so shows who you are as a person also, is that like you, you want to help, right? This wasn't like, okay, I want to get famous and make this into that. You want to help and you really want to be out there helping those. I didn't realize that those statistics were that high. So that is yeah. insane to me. Yeah, it's, it's bad. And it's, it's, it's the, one of the leading causes of maternal death worldwide. And even though it's a small percentage of women, they, it leaves the families devastated. You go in to give birth and you're, you know, you're, you're going in for the happiest day of your life. You're not going in there to have a funeral or two. And, and that is the reality of this, um, of this condition. And, right. you know, yeah, it's just, it's, it's really, really horrific. So do a hundred percent of my proceeds for the book, go to the AFU foundation. And, you know, we're just, and a lot of the speaking stuff that I do, a lot of it at the medical side, I do continuing education about it and also about listening to the patient's intuition and that of theirs, because many clinicians who I've spoken to have felt a lot of guilt for not listening. And then some have felt very strongly about listening and have gotten almost fired because of it. And so um, trying to change the way medicine is slowly but surely and go into a more narrative way where they're actually listening and giving more space. Because when you, when you do the research, you realize that a doctor will listen on average of 11 seconds to a patient's back history before they interrupt and inject their opinion on a diagnosis. And by giving an extra 19 seconds in that um, backstory, it gives the patient a lot of breathing room to share more of it. And ultimately, I think that anesthesiologist that I was talking to had given me so much time to share everything I had done, um, that that's what caused the hair on the back of her neck to stand up. Because each doctor I had spoken to saw me in piecemeal, right? They had had the stories, but over periods of months. So they forget it. They don't add it to their charts. They're not sharing each other's, you know, medical notes. And this one doctor gave me a lot of time to speak. And so I think in part, aside from her own intuition, and she talks a lot about um, what made her flag my file and, and do all the things that she did from a spiritual place, um, I think she also realized that um, that giving me that space to speak also helped. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's just incredible. It's incredible. So I want to ask any of you in the audience, if you guys want to come up and ask a question, I know some of you are in spaces that you can't ask a question because you're listening to this in, uh, you know, in, in a realm that's loud or whatever, but feel free to come up and ask Stephanie. Um, also, if you guys are listening on any other of the platforms, if you're on Twitter Facebook and uh, LinkedIn or Instagram, you are listening to a YNS live with author 
Stephanie Arnold of 37 seconds. Stephanie died during childbirth, but she saw the premonition and she shared with her doctors and one person listened. So if you just are tuning in now, you want to listen to the rest, you can find it in all the different apps where you're finding it right now. But if you go to Fireside, you'll be able to find it. If you're on Instagram, you can go into my link in my bio. And um, Stephanie, if you can just uh, talk a little bit about what you're doing, uh, you know, with your pilot, you're on net Netflix, anything that you can share with us. So the sure. listeners can keep following your journey and where to find you. If you guys see in the scroll right here, you can see where you can find Stephanie on Instagram at Steph Arnold's three, seven. Yes. Um, and, and also Twitter's the same LinkedIn. I think it's under Stephanie fish Arnold cause my maiden name and, um, the work that I'd done in TV. So it had some background, but, um, uh, and the website is getting rebooted. So that's stephaniearnold.net.net. But um, yeah, we're on Netflix currently. Our story, it's about 15 minutes or 30 minutes in on the first episode of Surviving Death. Um, you can actually meet the OB on the, who was my OB on, on our case and hear her perspective on it. It's about, um, about 15 minutes total on episode one. I signed a deal with um, Echoverse, which is a big podcasting company, part of Whale Rock Industries. And we are going to um, do a podcast called Knowing, which is you don't know how you know, you just do. And I'm sharing stories that, you know, might not have um, a scientific explanation, but I am taking a very open conversation about people who have had experiences similar or not similar. My, my pilot episode is about a Vietnam veteran who saw a helicopter crash the day before it happened and saw it exactly how it was going to happen. He almost got court-martialed because he tried to, to, um, ground the helicopter and they, and he was a door gunner in Vietnam, but he was just like, this is what's going to happen. If anyone gets on this, this chopper tomorrow, um, he's got a purple heart. He's got a uh, distinguished flying cross. These are all really, really incredible stories. And, and ultimately the chopper crashed exactly the way it said it would. And then he got investigated for tampering with it, thinking that he did it. Oh my gosh. And where is that? That's on the, um, that, uh, that's my pilot episode, but it has not been like, this has taken me so long because we are, we finally found the right producer out of NPR and we're taking a very, um, you know, I'm, with any of the work that I'm doing is like, it's very methodical in the sense that, that I just am not trying to put anything out there just for the sake of, Hey, listen to me. And this is what this, I really am fine tuning everything. So it, it's taken over a year to produce and get the right team together. And, um, and my, the EP of the Netflix show surviving death is my EP on this podcast. And hopefully it'll become a TV series. Amazing. Um, because it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. And so if any of you in the audience have any stories about this knowing, um, I would love to hear from you. So you can send an email to info at stephaniearnold.net. And we are sifting through story ideas for future episodes. And, um, and then I signed a deal with the former president of the Academy Awards and 37 seconds is going to be a movie. So, yay! Yes. so oh, I wrote the screenplay. I've never done that before. Never written a book before, but you know, you just, you just do. And I think that the, the message of, you know, your voice being heard 
and um, and also science can't give you all of the answers. The data doesn't have all of the answers. So, you know, leave yourself open to what the possibilities of what else is out there. So good. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. I mean, and, and I do want to also talk about a little bit like what you're doing now, because I think some of the stuff that we touched on, we can touch on really quickly. You are, um, health and fitness is something that's very important to you. Um, that was one thing that we actually talked about, about, I went for a run with my, my one dog and, um, we connected on that cause I hate cardio and Stephanie was saying how much she hated cardio. And then we got into talking about lifting weights and, um, and, and Stephanie, she's in incredible shape of all the surgeries that she went through. So that's another thing for women to see after you have uh, childbirth and a traumatic experience you can, with the right tools, get your bodies back, and which is really important because not a lot of women think they can. Yeah, I, you know, so right. I've had about five surgeries on my stomach. They, you know, I we can if people want to direct message me, they can say that this. They, and you've seen the pictures. I mean, the surgeries were pretty, pretty extraordinary. I was again, cut from sternum to pelvis. And, and so with that, you know, there were hernias in the scar tissue and then I had, they had to put mesh in my stomach and they had to rebuild the, the belly button. And so I have this massive scar that's in the center of my body. Um, the body is pretty incredible when it, when it heals itself, but you know, you still have, there's still part of vanity that, that comes into this where you're like, you don't feel sexy. You, you feel like you've just been butchered. And by the way, I've had, my uterus taken out. So now I'm no longer a woman to have the choice to have kids. And by the way, I wouldn't have any more, but I didn't have the choice to make that decision. Um, and so, so it took a long time to actually feel good in my skin. And I got tired of complaining about it. And, and I went to a plastic surgeon to find out like, is there something to do about all the scars? They did some lasers to lighten it, but they said the only way to get rid of it is a tummy tuck. And I'm like, that's massive reconstructive surgery. That's general anesthesia. That is a full blown, like, and by the way, I could lose blood supply to the, the belly button. Like there, there were just right. so many, there were so many no's about it. Um, so, and I'm an impatient person and I'm a total immersion kind of person. I'm like, what's the shortest way to just transform the body? And, um, I just kept up on like a bikini bodybuilding competition. Now, just so you know, there was zero chance I was putting on stiletto heels or stripper heels and getting up on a stage <laughs> in a sparkly bikini, especially given how I felt about my body. But I knew that if I followed a regimen and I was determined and goal setting for 16 weeks, because anybody can do anything for a short period of time, that I was going to transform the body. I didn't know how much. And by the time I got closer and closer to the date of the competition, um, my body started taking shape and my coach was just like, you're getting on that fucking stage. I'm like, hell no, I'm getting on this. And then, and then you have your husband saying, honey, you look amazing and sexy and everything. And I'm like, well, could I do this? Um, and 
you know, and then the spray tan helps take detract from the scars. And that was probably the worst part of the entire thing. But I did, <laughs> I did that. I got up on stage and I took second place in my category and then took top five. So against women who had never had children who were in their twenties and I was 48 at the time. So your body does have the ability to bounce back. And, and it was, it was a, it was an incredible lesson for me and anybody watching the process. Right. And it's also another part of your story. And that's what I love. It's another part of your story of how you came from this, this situation and then how it shaped you, but it also, you, you have more confidence, right? You have more confidence to go talk on those stages yeah. to tell people because you're like, listen, this is what I've done. So I just have to say, I, I'm so happy to be connected to you and um, so happy that we, you know, are cross paths and that you are here to share your story. And I cannot wait to keep following you. You guys can find step. You also have an audio book, right? The 37 seconds. Yes. Yeah. So 37 seconds just came out as an audio book and the book had been out for a while, but, um, but the audio book just came out with the Netflix show and yes, I narrated and yes, it was probably the most difficult thing I had done. Um, the audio was a new thing, like from different apps. And also I did a podcast for NPR and I cried through half of the interview because they want you to be so descriptive and you have to take the audience back into the operating room and it's one thing to write it and yes I threw up and got sick every time I was writing you know in the process of writing this book but you know then I move past it and then I talk on stages about it and then you go back right to those moments because they're like no you need to repeat that and you need to take us back into those moments. So then you get sick again. Um, but it's definitely, it's my voice. It is me taking you through this. It was, it was a not so easy process, but yes, it just came out. Well, I'm going to be getting that because I am dyslexic. And so I love listening to my books instead of reading them because it takes me a little longer to read. Um, and so, yes, no, I'm so excited. So again, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining. And thank you for all in the audience that have listened to the story. You guys, you know where you can catch if you are listening to this and just catching the end. You can listen to the live uh, broadcasted on Fireside. If you just go to links in bio, you will find us. And um, Stephanie, thank you again so much. We appreciate it. You are so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great first foray into Fireside. I, I know. I, I, and we'll talk We'll talk further behind the scene, but I'm going to bring up the weight bot, get a little music. But again, guys, we will talk to you soon. So next week, I will have another guest from the YNS Live NFL thread. It's going to be a great woman that has uh, been in the NFL for her husband for years and listen to that uh, program. And um, we will see you guys next week. I will start promoting that very soon. So I will see you guys soon. It's no secret It's plain to see